KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Good morning. I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Tuesday, August 16th. The stalled project that could have protected a town from near destruction. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County is facing a shortage of behavioral health workers. That's according to a new report by the San Diego Workforce Partnership. The report finds that 18,500 more mental health and addiction treatment professionals are needed by the year 2027. It also offers solutions to address the shortage. One of the proposals is to increase pay for the workers. 55% of those surveyed for the report were dissatisfied with pay. COVID cases in San Diego County are continuing to decrease. There was an average of more than 890 cases reported per day over the last seven days. That's down from an average of 1,000 cases. The county remains in the CDC's medium risk level for COVID. Since Thursday, five people have died from the virus. 5,400 San Diegans have died from COVID-related causes since the start of the pandemic. The warm and humid weather is expected to continue this week. More thunderstorms could also be on their way. The National Weather Service says the storms are expected primarily in the afternoons over the mountain areas. They also are expected to be more prevalent later in the week as moisture in the air increases. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, Even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. A year ago today, the Kelder Fire burned through the small town of Grizzly Flats in Northern California. The fire destroyed more than 400 homes and about two-thirds of the community. A new investigation from CAP Radio and the California Newsroom found that the U.S. Forest Service predicted for decades a wildfire could devastate Grizzly Flats, but its plan to protect the town didn't get done. Scott Rod reports. Mark Almer is one of the lucky ones. His home is still standing, but his view is now mostly scorched trees and empty foundations. It's kind of lonely around here now. Nearly two decades ago, the U.S. Forest Service gave a presentation showing how wildfire could level Grizzly Flats, and they modeled a fire that mirrored what happened last year. They showed a fire that could potentially wipe out our community within 24 hours. It wasn't 24 hours, but it was close in the Caldera Fire. So Elmer, a retired fire inspector, got to work. He helped create a volunteer group of residents called the Grizzly Flats Fire Safe Council. They raised money through community barbecues and wine tastings. They wrote grants. All told, they tackled nearly $2 million worth of fire prevention projects. 
The Forest Service, meanwhile, removed some excess trees and brush, but most of it was miles from town. It wasn't until 10 years after the community meeting that the agency announced a plan to protect Grizzly Flats, called the Trestle Project. It promised to reduce fuels in overgrown forests and set prescribed fires on 15,000 acres around the community. Fire ecologists say this work is essential to reducing catastrophic wildfires, and we don't have any time to waste, but... The history of the Forest Service in the time that we lived there was that everything took forever. Kathy Melvin was a member of the FireSafe Council. She lost her home of four decades in the Caldor Fire. It would take years and years and years for anything to get done. The Forest Service originally said it would finish the Trestle Project by 2020. The agency later pushed back the date by about a decade. Our investigation found they finished only 14 percent of the planned work before the Caldor Fire, which grew to one of the most destructive blazes in state history. Forest Service officials say they faced a series of hurdles in getting the work done. Pushback from environmental groups, staff shortages, and climate change, which has reduced opportunities to set prescribed burns. But the biggest problem, they say, was money. You know, that's not make any bones about this. We did not have the funding to do the level of work that needs to be done out there. Randy Moore is chief of the U.S. Forest Service. He's optimistic that billions of dollars recently allocated by Congress will jumpstart this work. He declined to weigh in on whether completing the Trestle Project would have protected Grizzly Flats. I, I, I'm not really sure, um, you know, why we keep talking about that question. Others had a lot to say. We spoke to a dozen sources, including wildfire experts, career firefighters, residents, and former Forest Service officials, who believe Grizzly Flats would have stood a better chance of surviving the fire if the Forest Service had finished the Trestle Project. That includes retired District Ranger Dwayne Nelson, one of the project's key architects. I think there would have been a very high probability that Grizzly Flat would not have burned in the Caldor Fire. It could have meant survival. Last year, he watched as the Caldor Fire consumed his former district. I'm not going to say I felt guilt, but what I did feel was remorse. Nelson says he's proud of the plan his team laid out to protect Grizzly Flats and proud of the work that had gotten done. But he says there was still plenty left to do when the Caldor Fire devastated this small community. In Grizzly Flats, I'm Scott Rod. Drug cartels terrorized Tijuana and other parts of Baja California Friday night by setting dozens of vehicles ablaze throughout the state. Tijuana residents were still on edge yesterday morning. KPBS reporter Gustavo Solis has more. If the cartel's goal was to terrorize the people of Tijuana, they succeeded. Images of burnt cars and buses have been published all over the world. Martin has lived in Tijuana for 20 years. He's used to the city's high murder rates, but said that Friday night's violence was different. This time it sent a message. Martin, who did not want us to use his last name, said the whole city is afraid. He stayed home Friday night, and he wasn't the only one. Graciela Martinez shut down her restaurant Friday after seeing a bus on fire nearby. She says she was too afraid to reopen Saturday morning. No, yo tenía miedo. Yo tenía miedo porque aquí estaba solo, 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 solo. Parecía desierto. Tijuana Mayor Monserrat Caballero tried to calm the city down over the weekend. She said 3,000 soldiers and 2,000 police officers were dispatched to keep the peace. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. The weekend violence in Tijuana impacted businesses on this side of the border. The Mexican Ministry of Economy says 
Every day, about 37,000 people cross the border from Tijuana to work in the U.S. But store owners say on Saturday, many workers stayed home out of fear. One store manager told KPBS her store was the only one open, and every store in at least two strip malls had to close because they depend on workers from the other side of the border. Desde la pandemia lo cerraron. Si puedan volver a cerrar o algo, por lo, mi lo mismo inseguridad. Si está como de pensarse así como que qué va a pasar. Y es miedo, pues porque uno aquí tiene su trabajo. She said businesses were already affected by the pandemic shutdowns, and they wonder if there will be more closures because of security issues. The County Board of Supervisors will vote today on an emergency action item to try to prevent drug overdose deaths in county jails. The plan includes incentives to hire more jail staff, improving the inmate wellness check process, and buying new body scanners to prevent drugs from entering the jails. KPBS reporter Alexander Wynn has the details. The emergency action item was docketed by Board Chair Nathan Fletcher. Jail deaths have been plaguing the Sheriff's Department in recent years, but Fletcher says there is a shift in how inmates are dying. Previously, inmates die from suicide or poor medical care. Now, they're dying from overdosing on drugs, including fentanyl. And I think what you see happening in the jails is reflective of what's happening across the county. And so while we take action to address uh, drug issues, illicit drugs and overdose outside the jail, we have to take the same intentional focus uh, to address the problem that comes into the jail. And that's, that's what we're doing here. Last month, there were five overdose deaths at the county jails and 15 so far this year. Alexander Nguyen, KPPS News. Coming up, the risk of mega-flooding in the state is increasing, according to a new study. We'll have that story and more next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. When you think of natural disasters in California, Wildfires, earthquakes, and drought often come to mind. But KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer takes a look at a new study that says the risk has increased for a different natural disaster, a mega flood washing across parts of the Golden State. The likelihood of a mega flood occurring in California has doubled due to climate change, according to a new study. 
Marty Ralph is the director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Is the chance of you know bigger floods is very real. Uh, they're rare, but not as rare as they were before the climate has been warming. And uh, you know they're looking at now 200-year storms being uh, something more plausible you know every 50 years. The study says it's possible parts of major cities such as Los Angeles and Sacramento would be underwater if the state endured the kind of winter flooding that took place during the state's great flood of 1862. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Across San Diego County, thousands of students returned to school yesterday including students at schools in the Grosmont Union High School District, which welcomed back 17,000 students. The district also welcomed a new superintendent, who sent a video statement to parents over the weekend. In it, Mary Beth Castan said school safety is her top priority. Teachers can't teach and students can't learn if they don't feel safe. I'll soon be introducing to you our new director of school safety, who will recommend security improvements and enhance our training for staff. Castan also announced that each high school will have an added campus supervisor this year to monitor any safety issues. Each campus is also getting a new therapist to offer more student mental health resources. With the start of school, many school board trustees are back at work on critical issues that caused conflict and chaos before. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has more. It's back to school in districts that include Grossmont Union, Del Mar, Rancho Santa Fe, and Solana Beach. The return of students also means those district's trustees are back at work handling finances, health issues, and safety concerns. Matters that created shouting matches and violence in some cases at meetings. Troy Flint is spokesman for the California School Boards Association, which is launching a statewide public education campaign this week hoping to provide a teachable moment. I think what students can take from this is that even great disruption, a great calamity can be an opportunity to rebuild, to re-examine, and can, can be an engine for change. The association's campaign will include personal appeals from California school board members through social media and news outlets. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. The Festival of Books is this coming Saturday. One of the local writers in attendance is Liz Huerta, who will be on a panel about young adult fantasy. Huerta's debut young adult novel is called The Lost Dreamer and is inspired by ancient Mesoamerica. The book is set in a fantasy world where some women have the ability to dream the truth. They're seers known as dreamers. The book unfolds as two young women struggle with their gifts as the world around them is rapidly, terrifyingly changing. Huerta previously spoke with KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's that conversation. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Julia. Thank you for having me. So in The Lost Dreamer, we follow two story threads about two distinct characters living very different lives. First, we meet Indir. And before we talk about her, would you read a little bit from the beginning when we first get a sense for Indir's world? 
Absolutely. This is the beginning of the book. The wail of a far-off conch shell woke me from my already broken sleep. I wanted to wail in response, in grief, in terror. Dogs began barking on the outskirts of the city. Unfamiliar drum rhythms pounded in the distance, echoing off the stone walls of our temple. I rose, blood rushing through my body as I swung from my hammock. An answering conch blew thrice from our own warriors, three cries for peace. Delu and Zeri stirred. I knew they were in dreaming, their bodies struggling to pull them back. I kissed them each softly, singing a small waking song, my voice breaking. Liz, can you tell me a little bit about who Indir is and what is on the line for her, not just in this moment, but in her world as a whole? Absolutely. Indir is a dreamer in the sacred city of Alcanza. She was born to a lineage of women who, when they sleep, can enter another dimension, kind of a spirit world, to get information to bring back for the citizens of Alcanza and the surrounding areas. The dreamers are a sacred lineage. They help all the people. And Indir has a few secrets, including the devastating realization that she is no longer able to dream. And can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that these dreamers go into what they call the dream to discover and to share? They have so many different gifts. One of the sisters has the ability to enter the dream and view weather patterns to see what crops should be harvested and which lands should go follow, what kind of animals to hunt, kind of a conversation with the natural world. One of the other sisters dreams possibility, the ability to kind of see what different decisions can play out and how they can affect the citizens of Alcanza and the surrounding areas. India, until she stopped dreaming, had the rare ability to dream truth where she could see things absolutely clearly and they would come true. And in this magical realm, the ancient traditions and the power dwell primarily with women. And this also feeds tension later in the book. Can you tell me what drove this choice and and what it means to you to have women at the helm there? Well, I've read so much fantasy over the years and for a long time it was a very male-dominated field. And that has shifted And when I went into this story, I really just wanted to center women. I wanted to center mothers and daughters and sisterhood and aunts and chosen family, just because for me, I come from such an incredible lineage of women, an incredible mom, aunts, sisters, extended women in my family. And they really are the backbone of my family. And I think in a lot of other Latinx families. So I wanted to center our stories as sacred, that we have these gifts that carry us forward and are caretakers and creators and visionaries. I just wanted to celebrate us. And you have referred to yourself as a working class writer before. Um, You do manual labor and you worked in manual labor while writing this book. How important was your work as you wrote, and did it seep into the story in any way? I think so. I worked for my family's wrought iron business, um, as my sisters do. I'm not really good in the office or on the phone. I have pretty intense ADHD, so my father sent me off to be an iron painter, which I've been doing on and off for 20 years. And I think listening to audiobooks all day, every day, 
and working with my body and looking around at the other workers, uh, many of them of indigenous descent from Mexico and Central America, and trying to place them in a story where they were sacred, where we were sacred. And it just, it all kind of came together. That was author Liz Huerta speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon Evans. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great day.